Hello and welcome to episode four of Living Value, a podcast where I interview people who bring value in three key areas, business and finances, community and ideas. My guest for this episode is Edwina Dixon. She's a multi-award winning mortgage broker. She is the founder and director of Pinpoint Finance and actually became the fastest broker ever to win a national award as a mortgage broker. She's passionate about educating young people and especially young women about finances and good financial management. And she is a community builder who is helping people to improve their personal financial situations and reach their goals. And perhaps most impressive of all, she's managed to put up with me for the last six years as my wife. So not only does she tick all the boxes for this podcast, creating value in business, in community, and in the sharing and improving of ideas, but she also has the patience of a saint. Before we get started, if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting me at toferfield.locals.com forward slash subscribe. That's toferfield.locals.com forward slash subscribe. I'd love for you to share this podcast with others. Follow me on Podbean or your preferred podcast platform. And you can follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash toferfield. And without further ado, welcome to Living Value, Edwina Dixon, otherwise known as Babe. Hi, thanks for having me on your show. You, you sound really excited to be here. <laughs> um, look, some people might accuse me of bringing you on the show because you're, you know, you're my wife and you're here. And I can just get you easily on the show, etc. But the truth is you and what you've done, you really do embody what this podcast is all about. This idea of living value, bringing value in the area of finances, bringing value in the area of ideas and bringing value in the area of communities. And we're going to go through them all in turn. But I'd like to kind of start by talking about when you branched out from working and you had a lovely university job and you can talk about that. When you branched out from that and said, you know what, I'm actually going to go out on my own and try and start my own business. So introduce us to who you were before you made that decision and what went into that decision. Why did you make that choice? Hmm. Okay. Um, so I guess to start with, I had been at working at the Australian Mathematical Sciences Institute, which is uh, housed at the University of Melbourne. I'd been working there for close to 10 years um, when I then went out on my own and, and started broking, um, mortgage broking. But Prior to that, I had started a couple of other small businesses. So, so you've always kind of had that itch, that that desire to be running your own business. Uh, I think it had always been modelled to me. So, from your parents, from my from parents, your, okay. yeah. So, uh, and also from my older sister as well. So, mm -hmm. my older sister is seven years older than me, um, and she had worked. Uh, through some other big companies, but ultimately had then gone and started her own graphics design company. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it had been modelled through my parents as well. So my mum had worked at various jobs um, and had then gone in with her brother and her cousin uh, having their own kitchen company, which they then had for 17 years so she was the director of a kitchen company it was quite a successful kitchen company back in the day uh, and then my 
dad. He was a builder and renovator and he had his own business as well, though more smaller scale than what mum did. Um, And so I'd always seen them in some capacity working for themselves. So then let let me rewind the question a little bit further then. Given that's what had been modelled to you so much, um, why did you end up, how did you end up working at the Australian Mathematical Sciences Institute in the first place? I uh, had, my mum had always said, go and work for somebody else. It's always going to be more stable, less stressful. You don't have to think about, you know, um, all the different laws, all of the different um, ways that you then have to pay people. Obviously, you have their wage, but then, you know, you have annual leave and long service leave and, you know, you've got to have money set aside for superannuation, all those other things. So she was doing it. She was the, the director of, of this kitchen company, but she was actually recommending to you, don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Whereas my dad on the other side, he was a bit more go and start your own business because having your own business allows you to then choose when you work what work you take um, it provides the the flexibility uh, to be able to live a comfortable life on your terms basically mm. um, but the I guess the consensus from most both of my parents was if you work for another company first then you can actually see how that operates how that runs and then you start to actually know what you like what you don't like in the in the same way you know you do with dating you know you you date a whole bunch of people and you're like actually you know what that guy's the better of the options available i win yes Yeah. At least I hope I won because you married me. So, <laughs> yeah, true. You know, I hope you weren't just grinning and bearing it and thinking, "Oh goodness, I should have stuck with that other guy back then." <laughs> anyway, back to the back to the jobs because I, I really don't answer that. I really don't want you to answer that question. So you find yourself working at the Australian Mathematical Sciences Institute, yeah. but there is this itch, there is this this thing in the back of your mind that tells you that you either should be or you want to be working for yourself. Yeah. So I um, had in that time that I worked at AMSI, so AMSI for short. Mm. Um, I had then started up a music distribution business Mm -hmm. with a friend um, and we did that for five years and that did reasonably well, you know. Um, The thing that meant that we actually just decided to shut the business down and get out of it was... Spotify came to the Australian market. Oh, I, th- I think I might have heard of them. They, they would have been a, a bit of a big competitor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So online music, though, at that point, really, it, it had started to come out. So were yeah. you an online music distributor? Or no. Were you, okay, we were, so you we were, were more the physical, traditional model. Traditional model, right. yeah. Okay. So we would... Um, we would look for and source musicians essentially we would try and find bands and artists that we love the music of and then distribute their stuff so we did have an online store and we distributed music online but it was still the physical product as well as being in stores that you know people could then buy 
CDs mm. from or T-shirts. Back in the day, goodness. Yeah. So, but, but that, none of that exists anymore. No. <laughs> well, but the, that wasn't the only business that you started while you were working at Amsi, though. No, so that one went for five years, um, and because of Spotify and because we saw where the industry was going, we just kind of went, okay, we just got to get out. This is mm-hmm. ridiculous. Otherwise, we'd be sinking a lot of money to try to compete. Why bother? Yeah. Um, and so then, after that. I then started to consider a bit more about, okay, well, what is it that I am passionate about from a different perspective? Um, What is another industry that, you know, isn't about to be completely annihilated by a massive player (laughs) coming in from overseas? Uh, And one of the things or one of the areas that I really enjoyed was finance and just playing with money, the manipulation of money, um, the way that it sounds really terrible, the manipulation of money, well, creative accounting or, or no, no, it's not a creative accounting. I mean, there is that element to it, but the way that people engage with their finances and the way that in their own minds, the psyche that they have around money, whether they are manipulating the money to do what it is that they want or whether they are being manipulated by their own money mm. to live out a different life than perhaps what they would ideally want for themselves. Mm. Um, so there is a level of manipulation that takes place. You know, there is that saying of, you know, are you the master of your finances or are you the servant of your finances? And did this come out of this interesting sort of finance? Did this come out of your own experiences or was it more of a, a an esoteric kind of you were interested in it from a distance? Um, it was something I was just always good at. It just mm. made sense to me. Like I can recall and part of my career progression, pro- career progression mm-hmm. at AMSI was the fact that one day I was the receptionist there and uh, I, well, what happened? It was that day I got to work and my boss wasn't there. My boss at the time was the EA and it was a bit like, oh, that's odd. You know, like he's always early. Where is he? And if he's not here, he always calls and, and lets us know and, and whatever. And and the morning progressed and then all of a sudden the office, he managed to call somebody at the office. I can't remember who it was or his wife did. Um and he was at a doctor's surgery. He had come off his push bike on his way to riding a bike to work. He had had a dog run out in front of him. He had gone straight over the handlebars and he had broken both of his arms. Mm. So in breaking both of your arms, all of a sudden you're not turning up at work mm-hmm. and who knows when you're coming back. And so that particular day, all of a sudden, it was a case of, great, we have four staff members and one of them has just broken both of their arms. How are we going to redistribute this workload, basically? Um, And for me, I kind of went, well, hold on, I can do all of the accounts side of stuff. I can do all the bookkeeping side of stuff. Um, And then it turned out, 
I was actually really good at that. Mm. And, you know, they had an 18, 18 or 28 digit um, account string that changed based on whatever the particular line item was that you had to then report on when you were doing everything. And I could just recall those numbers off the top of my head. <laughs> and it was just like, oh, yeah, okay, great. We've got to send whatever this particular invoice for this particular university for this particular thing. Great. And I can just punch it out. Mm. Okay. So numbers have, have kind of been a strong area for you for as long as you can remember. Yeah. It's always sort of always yeah, been yeah. a strength. Okay. But you can go into numbers in a bunch of different areas. You could go into theoretical maths. You could, I mean, obviously you were, you were working at the Australian Mathematical Sciences yeah. Institute. Yeah. You could have gone in that direction. Yeah. You specifically went for money. And I'm, in particular in relation, obviously I, I have a homegrown advantage here because I, I, I know you a little bit, you know, we've been married yeah. for six years. We've got two kids together. So I've got a little bit of a homegrown advantage here. But the you talk about the difference that it can make in people's lives is one of the things that comes up quite a lot when we talk about money and yeah. the decisions that get made around money. Mm -hmm. Was that something that played into your decision to get into finance in the first place or is that something that you discovered a bit later on? I think I've never been afraid of money. Mm. So um, even in that, particular job as I started to move into taking over more of the finances and also just looking after more of the portfolio of AMSI and they were receiving government grants as well as funds from other areas, you're starting to deal in some pretty big numbers. And as in sort of six figure, seven figure, hundreds of thousands, millions. Yeah. 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 And so at that point then you're looking at it and you're going Okay, great. They've got they're doing that sort of stuff. They're also then they had a different brand or a different branch that was looking at a national curriculum for mathematics textbooks. Mm. So there's you know royalties for that that's happening around the country. Mm -hmm. But it it started with putting up my hand and saying, hold on, I can do this numbers stuff, dealing with money and playing with money is easy and I'm comfortable with that. Whereas a lot of people aren't particularly comfortable with it and if you're not comfortable with mm. money whether it's small amounts or really big amounts once you get to the size of okay i'm buying a house most people can't comprehend those figures if you say great i'm going to buy a three million dollar house nobody knows what three million dollars sitting on a table actually looks like, looks like. What, what is it how much work does that represent i, I don't know yeah th there isn't a metric for that mm. and so a lot of people instinctively put up barriers around money mm. to be able to keep it in check in their own minds. Mm. So whether that's a case of not allowing themselves to dream about big things that they would like to do because there's a dollar figure attached to it mm -hmm. that they think is unattainable. And they just don't believe that they could get to the point where they could afford that. Yeah. Mm. Or whether it's the opposite, where it's, you know, somebody goes, oh, well, you know what? I am going to go and I'm going to buy um, a Ferrari. Mm. And yes, that's an achievable dream, but hold on, I can't go and buy a house in a nice suburb. Mm. And you're like, well, hold on, that makes no sense at yeah, all. So they, they believe in one, but they've blocked the other. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And, and people, people do that. And so, I think being able to understand just money and not being afraid of 
the figures and being mm. afraid of the numbers has meant that for me anyway, I can then have a lot of those conversations because it's not the money that is ultimately the issue. Mm. It's the tool. The money is the tool to get them to whatever else it is that they want to do. So you learned that about yourself in AMSI, dealing with bigger and bigger amounts of money, doing their accounts, etc. At some point, you decided to make a leap, not just a leap from one job to another, but a leap from being in secure employment. You were working for Melbourne University. It doesn't get much much more of a blue chip uh, type of, of job oh, than yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you stepped away from that into the uncertainty of, of self-employment in an industry that's fairly that's fairly tough and was male-dominated at the time. It's still, still broadly speaking dominant. years, yeah. but at the time, certainly, I mean, what are we talking now, eight-odd years ago, seven and a half yeah. years ago, something like that? Very male-dominated still hasn't It has, still hasn't broken, I think, 30% for women for in women, the industry. For women, yeah. Okay, so still 70% plus men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why? What... And, and and what was it that actually made you go, okay, I'm going to do this as opposed to I'm going to think about this? A lot of people are thinking about leaving their job, thinking about starting a business. Why did you do it? Uh, so back then, um, I had discovered a great way to be able to save, which was in incremental blocks, mm-hmm. right? And I had worked out that for me... I operate best in incremental blocks. So I could go, okay, great. For a period of time, I'm going to work in $10,000 incremental blocks. Mm -hmm. You know, save up 10 grand, throw it somewhere else. As opposed to saying, I'm trying to save 100,000 and that just seems a bit unachievable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I started to do that and then I started to go, you know what, I want to buy some property um, and I thought, best to obviously do that while I'm at the uni makes Mm -hmm. sense I've Mm -hmm. got the paperwork for it um I purchased sorry paperwork as in secure income pay slips yeah sort of a straightforward kind of loan you're not doing self-employed tax returns and all of that kind of stuff yeah so I knew enough to kind of go okay from the bank's perspective I look like I and I am (laughs) of good character and um, I have the capacity to be able to purchase something. So those characteristics were there. Yeah. And I went, okay, great. I'm going to buy something. So I bought my first investment property mm-hmm. and I organized the loan for that. And two days before settlement was meant to happen, I got a call from the bank um, and they said, we don't lend to this particular postcode. Oh. And I just went, I'm sorry, what? And they mm. said, oh, we don't lend to this particular postcode. You've purchased a property in a postcode that we won't accept a security property from. And they didn't notice that when you applied. No. They, it took all the way until just a few days before it was supposed to settle before they went, oh, oops. Yeah. We shouldn't have ever approved this. Yeah. So what did you do? Uh, well, <laughs> panicked a little bit. Mm. Uh, and I had a, or I still have a friend that worked at a company that did insurance. And I had at one point in time, I had gone to one of his like office, I don't know, his party things. And I had met somebody there who was a mortgage broker right. within the company. 
they didn't do that wasn't like one of their things but he was a mortgage broker Yep. yep so i called up my friend and was like hey do you reckon you guys could help me out with this and he's like let me make it you know, let me go talk to them and, mm. and see what they say. He calls me back and says uh, the value of the property isn't high enough and the loan isn't high enough. There's not enough money in it for them. They're not going to help you out. They don't okay. care. And I was like, oh, really? That Charming. that seems, yeah, yeah, a bit rough. And my friend then turned around and said, but, I'm pretty sure I know somebody that will help you out. And I was like, okay, fine, whatever. Like, as long as I can get this thing done, Mm. like, I don't really care. Anyway, so he then put me on to somebody else and I called that guy and he was like, oh, yep, cool, yep, I can do it. And he got it done. In two days or it was delayed? So So push back the settlement and so forth. Push back the settlement. So he then basically said, give me all of the details for all of these different people, you know, the real estate agent, your conveyancer, and Mm. I think that was probably it, uh, and said, leave it with me. I'll let you know. I'll give you a call when it's time to sign paperwork, basically. Okay. And I was like, all right, fine. This seems magical. I don't understand what's going on. Um. And he, yeah, got settlement pushed back by two weeks and we went to another bank and it happened. Yeah, wow. And at that point I kind of went, oh, I see. This is what mortgage brokers do. It's not just finding you the best loan. It's actually just making sure that you get settlement to start with. Managing the process, dealing with the problems that come up. And dealing with all the other different people along the way. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of just went, oh, I see, right. So then after that point, um, I'd already had friends come to me and kind of say, hey, you understand money and uh, you understand it in ways that we don't quite get, even though we are mathematicians. We This is <laughs> numbers is what we do, but we do a different version different type of numbers different type of numbers Mm. um can you check out our mortgages do you think that there might be something better and i'm like um yeah there there is like go see these people and ask them for this particular thing and off you go and it wasn't until after i had then purchased that investment property and i had another friend come to me and basically say the same thing, you know, can you help me out? I think I pay him too much, whatever. That person then actually said, you realize you could get paid for this. (laughs) I was like, I see. I don't think I can though. And they said, oh no, but this is what a mortgage broker does. I'm like, yeah, but I didn't pay my mortgage broker. Mm. They said, yeah, but they got a commission for it. Mm. I was like, yeah, I remember them saying that, but you know, like, is that really getting paid for stuff? Uh, mm. eh, I don't know. It, it, I'm not so sure I believe it. Mm. And they said, yeah, you know what? Look into it. You would be great at this. You know, you seem to get it. You seem to understand what's going on. Mm. Check it out. Okay. So I did a bit of research. I called a few people um, and my younger sister then found an ad online for a 
what they call an aggregator. So they kind of hold all the licenses with all the different banks. And we went to that and we went to an information-y thing for that and was like, yep, okay, this is kind of cool. But at that point, I then realized in doing all the research for it, it was going to be very different than starting the music distribution where I needed very Mm. little capital. Mm. This was going to be a case of for this to work, I would have to leave my full-time job. Yeah, right. And for this to work, I need a bunch of cash behind me Mm. to make sure that it does work. Because the failure rate of new businesses is very, very high. And the mortgage yes. broking industry is not an exception to that. The, no, it's higher. Yeah, the failure rate for, for new entry brokers in the first couple of years is is very, very high. Yeah. And there were lots of barriers to entry as well. So what was the upside that you saw? What what made you, what was the, the, the blue sky that you saw that made you willing to take the risk, spend the money, go to the effort, get out of that comfort zone that you'd found? What was it for? Why? Very good question. (laughs) Mostly to be able to understand how I can build my own portfolio Mm -hmm. of investment properties Mm because I saw that as a vehicle, you know, in the future to be able to live a comfortable life. Right. And to be able to ultimately just help my friends do the same Mm. thing. Well, they were already they were already taking your time. Exactly. Uh, you yeah, might yeah. As well get paid for it. Yeah, and, and a, a few years later, I discovered that actually a lot of my friends thought that I basically was doing something like that, but for the university. I'm like, oh, I guess right. universities do buy properties, and they've got to get mortgages and loans and stuff from mm. banks, but that wasn't the area that I was working in. Okay, so you haven't become one of the casualties of your industry. You're one of the ones that now seven, seven and a half, however many years in, uh, I've lost track of the number of awards. It's a dozen or more industry awards that you've won, um, including setting some new records in terms of being the newest in the industry to win some of these awards, winning them earlier in your career in the industry than than anyone else ever has. Mm -hmm. What was it that gave you that outcome versus the ones and you've seen a lot of people come and go versus the ones that haven't necessarily made it what was different i had my mum right what what did she do for you well uh back then as i like i mean i mentioned earlier you know mum had a bigger business she was a director Mm -hmm. of a kitchen company Mm -hmm. um and she said, don't go into having your own company because it's more stressful and all that kind of stuff. So mum understood in a way that I didn't. She understood a pipeline. She understood KPIs. She understood not stopping on a success as for, for longer than you really need to. Stop, celebrate it, and then move on. So kind of the relentlessness of business, the fact that you're always yeah. prospecting, you're always... Yep. You, you've, you've it got never stops. clients at every point in the, in the customer journey. Because yeah. I guess you understanding the back end and the accounts doesn't mean you actually really know anything about business. sales, oh, no. marketing, yeah, yeah. that so stuff. So doing mortgage broking, the, the reality of that work is completely separate to running a business. Mm. Running a business is in itself its own 
um, skill set, really, just because I know how to um, work out the best loan or the best mortgage structure for a client. I know the best banks to go to to be able to suit somebody's Mm. needs and objectives doesn't mean that I am particularly good at projecting income over the next six to 12 months or working out cash flow and ensuring that there's enough money in the kitty to pay GST and Mm. all that kind of stuff. Like those are two very separate skill sets. So when I started out, I was... I knew how to jump. Mm. I I knew how to go, yep, okay, I'm going to slowly reduce the amount of days that I was working at the university for Mm. until I could kind of get to that sweet spot of I can't do my job in any less hours. Mm -hmm. I have to be here for a certain amount of time to be able to still do my job. Just just to do the function that you do. Yep. Um, And then on the flip side, I can get all of the coursework done for the mortgage broking stuff i can do as much preparation as i yeah yeah all of the you know the diplomas and the that side of stuff Mm -hmm. and then after a particular point in time it's just like all right i just you got to pull the pin like you just got to jump in with two feet Mm. and now they say that if you want to get into the industry you really need to have sort of 12 months of income behind you. Yeah, wow. Which is a huge chunk of money. Yeah. So I mean that's that's it's almost a house deposit. It's oh, do you want to buy a house or do you want to become a mortgage broker and risk losing it all? Yeah. That's a, that's basically. a pretty high risk yeah, yeah, decision. Yeah. Before we move on, I want to go back to your mum. In in Okay, so she had this knowledge. Did she perform the function of a mentor and accountability partner? How did her knowledge, what was in her head, actually benefit you and the reality of the outcomes that you got? She became a accountability partner, mm. essentially. So I would see her and be like, hey, mum, yeah, I've been doing all this stuff. It's been really great. And, you know, back then it used to take me a really long time to actually just do all the research and, and everything from the mortgage broking aspect, right? The, sorry, the research. Yeah, like the research of working out what's the right strategy and the right loan for a client. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So so that the the component of, of just the actual it. take time. Yeah. yeah, work, that took a long time. Um but I would be like, yay, this is amazing. I have met with these people and I've met with these people and I think I'm going to do this and blah, 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 blah. And mum would go, yep, okay, that's great. And then a week later, I would see her and be like, or I'd talk to her on the phone and it's be like, oh, yeah, these people, that loan settled. I'm really excited. It's going to be great. And by the way, it's going to take me like a month or more till I get paid for that. <laughs> um, and possibly clawed back who knows but anyway that's another issue and then mum would go wow that's fantastic well done edwina you know that's really exciting hey how did you go with these other people people you'd mentioned previously previously mentioned to her and at that point i'd be like oh oh yeah i forgot about those people oh so early yeah, on, your systems start. weren't great. My systems weren't great. No, <laughs> if not you're at forgetting all. clients, that's that's not great. Well, yeah, but at the same time, like you get so emotionally, you get so caught up in the process and then in the win. Mm. So because when somebody has a win, 
when they themselves are so wound up with their finances, it it does have an effect on you. Mm. So, you know, like I had one client where I refinanced her mortgage. She was in a terrible, horrible home loan. We refinanced it. She had, you know, some bad debt sitting there. So mm. we did a bit of debt consolidation to get rid of that. And she was incredibly grateful for being able to do that, mm. right? The impact of that was then seen about a month later when, you know, you, you call up and you're like, oh, hey, how's it going? You know, has your first repayment gone through? Is it all okay? Yeah. Everything's yeah. set up all right? And she said yes and she then had said that in that period of time, I think it must have been six weeks, she had then been able to save heaps of money from her salary and she had just been told that her best friend was getting married in Fiji and she had worked out with this new mortgage repayment and without having to have all these other debts Mm. that actually she was going to be able to save enough to be able to go to her best friend's wedding in Fiji, which was in like, I don't know, 12 weeks time or something like that. And she was just like, there is no way I would have been able to Mm. do this if you hadn't have fixed all of my finances for me. And nobody else was willing to look at her stuff for it because again, the loan was too small. People just look at her and go, oh, no, not helping Too much work, not enough reward. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And that's a pretty common story but it's not just common on that side you see it on the high-end side as well Mm. you know with people with huge mortgages where they're like i've got a million dollars and people just go ah seems a little bit a little bit hard and i see because the criteria might make that a hard amount of money to get you know to refinance or whatever yeah 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 yeah. so it's across the spectrum Mm. really There's, there's clients all through that range that are having a hard time finding the right mortgage broker or someone that can actually do the job. Yeah. Yeah. That's willing to look through it and kind of work it out. And and back then, I certainly got a lot more caught up in the, I guess, yeah, the emo- emotional roller coaster with mm. each client. So you don't forget the clients that you're working with. <laughs> um, but mum was really great at then saying, okay, that's fantastic. Mm. Now, what about some of these other clients that you've been helping? As you say, she understood something that you had yet to learn. You obviously have since. Yeah. The relentlessness of business. Yeah. That you, you're just always prospecting, always filling yeah. that pipeline. Yeah. So, okay, that, that I understand. And you went through the journey in the early years of learning how to do the, the, the job, uh, but then also learning the business. And I think you make a great point that the skill set of running a business is distinct from what the business does. Mm. And there's a lot of people probably in a similar situation to where you were at AMSI, where they're very good at something. They're very good at what they do, whatever that is. Mm. And they're in many cases sitting there thinking, I could do this for myself and make a whole lot more money. Mm. But have they thought about all those other things? I mean, what were some of the things that you discovered after you took the leap? What what were some of those things that you suddenly went, hang on, there's this whole other skill set here that I now have to learn? Projecting your income was a big one. Yeah. So... Um, for for mortgage brokers, you get paid a, more than a month after the loan has settled. 
So you might take out a mortgage. Mm. It settles on the 1st of February. Well, settlement can be 90 days if you're buying a house. Yeah. So So the work that I've done for that then means that I've done most of that work um, right at the start when you first signed a contract Mm -hmm. in that finance clause period Mm -hmm. of where you've got 14 days or whatever. Then your settlement is then, say, 90 days. Mm -hmm. And I'll get paid generally... 30 to 45 days after that. So you're getting paid a solid four and a half, five, maybe five and a half months in those cases after you've done the work. Yeah. Right. That's, so I can see why you would say that forecasting would be a pretty big Yeah, uh, that's a tricky one. Yeah. The other side to it is that I don't understand the rationale of this, um, but mortgage brokers are also subject to something called clawback, which means that you could do the work mm-hmm. and within a 18 to two year period after you've done that and you've been paid for it. For a specific loan. For a specific loan. Right. If a client then goes and refinances with somebody else, mm-hmm. sells the property, mm-hmm. maybe they get divorced, they have Mm -hmm. to sell it, or they die and it goes into an estate and it gets sold, whatever the rationale, Mm -hmm. whatever the reason, if that mortgage that you have helped that person get, if that disappears, Mm -hmm. the bank then turns around and goes, oh, all that money that we paid you for that work that you did, yeah, we're taking that back off you. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So you then, you're not just projecting your income in the future, you're also making sure that you've got a buffer there in case any of that happens. Then you've got all, so that's pretty unique to broking. That's a, that's Very a pretty unique, unique set of circumstances. Yeah. But then you've got all the regular stuff, Yeah. you know, managing taxes, GST and, mm-hmm. and income tax and all that stuff, yep. uh, all your BAS statements, all the rest of it. Um, but also, obviously, clients finding clients mm-hmm. where do they come from in in a business like this what's what's the process and and i guess we can kind of fast forward a little bit here and say well what have you learned up to now not just early on but what have you learned up to now in terms of you know this is a very high trust business there are people putting a lot of faith in you they're giving you a lot of personal information yeah uh, does that mean that only really friends will do business with you or does it actually put friends off and, and really it's better as a professional relationship with people that don't know you at all how how have you solved this problem that every business has of getting new clients Hmm. not approaching friends Mm -hmm. because your friends are too close but it's the because of the amount of personal information involved for for my business yes because of the amount of personal information if i was a photographer or if i was a builder or a a craftsman or something work for friends and or work with friends and yeah and and it's not not a a big deal yeah exactly um but in this particular situation it is quite unique and the way that i um sometimes joke about probably i don't know that i've made this joke to you but it is almost like i'm doing a faster job of what a therapist does with a couple (laughs) because you could go into couples counseling and they you know you have this whole discussion but you may not necessarily be telling the whole truth Mm. there like you can still have walls up Mm. but the numbers don't lie yeah, right. And so I can sit down now because of regulation, I can and I'm required to look at 
three months, potentially six months worth of bank statements for all of your bank accounts. At that point, I've got a pretty good idea of what's yeah. going on. So the person that says, no, 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 I don't have a gambling problem. He's like, uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice try. Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And so from that side of things, like if you then think about, you're not going to turn around to your friend and say, hey, how's it going? Um, come into my office and, by the way, just strip down naked. <laughs> you know, like that's not going to happen. I'm not a doctor. Mm-hmm. It, and even if I was, that would still be really weird. Yeah. You, you know? Yeah. You don't, you don't, you don't go to your best mate who's a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Not going <laughs> to You talk to them over the dinner table, but then you go and, and strip naked in front of some other doctor. Exactly. You, yeah, yeah, yes. Gotcha. <laughs> well, look, that makes perfect sense. So... How do you then, I mean, this is, a, this is a tough industry to market in the sense that people don't need a loan all the time. You're not selling lollies. You're not selling something that someone could just no. buy any point in time. No. So the average Australian will refinance every four to five years mm-hmm. um, and they will buy a new home or, or change their living situation. Every seven to eight years. Okay. Just due due to life cycle, like the phases of life, basically. Um, So it does mean that it takes a long time to, I guess, build up that portfolio of clients. But certainly what I've noticed over the years is that initially it was quite difficult to find clients because... Mm. I mean, you don't want to ask for referrals. If you do a good job, then you should naturally just be referred is, is my philosophy anyway. And I think that is the case. But at the same time, people don't talk around their mortgage broker. Like you're yeah. not hanging out with your mate going, hey, <laughs> I met the most amazing mortgage <laughs> broker. You should totally go and see them. Like that doesn't yeah. happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there is an element, on, and certainly prior to the Royal Commission, into you know banking and you know that was the, that. Yeah, um, the, the Royal Commission to Banking Misconduct I think it was yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and superannuation stuff yeah um, that prior to that people were incredibly secretive about yeah. their mortgage broker it was almost like I have this secret weapon that is helping me get ahead financially and I don't want to tell other people mm, about a, them because I don't want them being busy when I need their help. Is it they don't want you to be busy or is it a case of if they're trying to keep up with the Joneses, they don't want to give away their secret weapon to the Joneses? Mm, yeah, it might be that too. Mm, interesting. Interesting yeah. psychology. And how do you how do you grow a business? How do you market a business when uh, when that dynamic is in play? Like, what do you do now? How, how do you find clients now? Um. I'm still follow a lot of the similar things that I did back then, which okay. is I'm ultimately just nice and friendly to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like to make everybody laugh, which works well. Look how much you're laughing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> um, but then also just using social media. Um, we use a lot of technology at the end of the day mm. and for me there's also an element of i'm young and female i'm different to most of the mortgage brokers out there most mortgage brokers are in their mid to late 50s Mm. they're male they've come out of banking i haven't come out of banking i came out of higher education Mm -hmm. um i'm young i'm pretty i'm female (laughs) (laughs) so in a way you've kind of turned what was 
your disadvantage, you trying to break in as a young woman into a very much old boys club industry, mm. you've turned that into a point of difference and into a, a, a reason why people might yeah. come to you. Yeah. So let me, let me extend that question because it is a related question, although very different. Uh, isn't a mortgage broker a mortgage broker? Why, how do you differentiate yourself in an industry where at the end of the day, aren't you just selling the same thing as everybody else? What's the difference well, between yes you and, and everybody else? No. Um, a lot of there are a lot of mortgage brokers that uh, will stick to one, two, three lenders or banks that they use. Or like the big four, the ANZ, yeah. the CBA, yeah. etc. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's kind of it. Right. And they get really good at knowing that. And and generally, it's they've worked at one of those for like. 20 years or right. 15 years say, or whatever. They've come out of banking. They've, they've come, come out, out of, of banking. Yeah, right. they know their policies really well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, prior to the Royal Commission, prior to COVID, banking policy, it changed, but wasn't that regular. Mm. Um, but there are so many different banks in the country mm. that help people get mortgages. And the major four aren't the greatest like they're good in certain areas but they're not the best options you mean like in terms of the, so they're not offering the best interest rates or the best features in a loan or, yeah. or whatever you're right okay. yeah, yeah they're treating everybody so, not particularly well okay so three four lenders that's not many you're saying in the, in the landscape that there is so how many lenders do you actually assess when you have a client for me personally, yeah, like when, when you have a client, how many, how many banks can you find? Do you look at to find them the best product? Uh, off the top of my head, 30, 37. Different lenders that you will actually go through and be like, yeah. does this lender have the right product? Does that lender have the right yeah. product? Yeah, right. Okay, so that's a pretty big point of difference, but you're not the only one that, True. that does that. Yeah. The good so, ones will. so as you say, you're, you're young and pretty and you're yeah. female. So that's a point of difference there. But yeah. again, does that really influence customer outcomes? Um, you obviously, yes. So you look at a lot more lenders than many brokers uh, agreed. Mm -hmm. um, but again, you're not unique in that. No. So why? Why would somebody, and, and this is, you know, I'm, I'm prying here because this is a question that a lot of people in service type industries or industries where their product is limited, mm. they can't differentiate the product necessarily. Yeah. So how do you differentiate? So it's, it's tricky for us um, because it's actually more to do with the ongoing service. So after the loan is settled. After the loan is settled, right. yeah. So um, for example, like this week just gone, right? Yeah. Um, I sent out an email to some clients to say, hey, great news. We've had your interest rate on your current mortgage change from whatever it was to this new one. And it's like a difference of 0.4%, you know, so. That's pretty substantial. Pretty substantial, yeah. And that was because you you just simply out of the blue reached out to their bank and said, "Hey, we want a discount." Or like, why yeah. would they? Why would they yeah, say yeah. yes? So we had seen that there was just enough movement in the market, and there was enough movement for their particular loan type. We then kind of reached right. out to them, and we had done it, you know, six months ago, mm -hmm. and we'd got a rate reduction back then. Mm. And then they the bank said, "Yep, okay, we're going to give you this particular rate reduction." We're like. Okay, fantastic. But why didn't you take it to this other level? And they come back to us and say, oh, well, it's to do with 
the LVR, so the loan to value ratio. Right. And so at okay. that point, then we then go, okay, great. We now need a bit more capital growth for this particular client's investment property before we go back to the bank and say, hey, we want another rate reduction. So we then right. waited until that particular client's investment property had reached a particular capital growth point. Yep. We then went back to the bank and said, hey, this client now fits into- It ticks the boxes. It ticks the box yep. of this new pricing point. Right. We want that for our client. And, and you're just doing that in the background. Like, yeah. That's just literally part of what you do yeah. on an ongoing basis. So your clients are basically from time to time getting the benefit of what is effectively a refinanced interest rate, but without the hassle. Exactly. Of the yes. refinance. Yeah, yeah right. Because, okay. I mean, as much as we take the the pain out of all of the paperwork side of things, mm. and we've got pretty streamlined ways to collect all the documentation from clients, mm. having to go through that refinance process is like you still have to find the paperwork. Yeah. You still have to log into your online banking yeah. and yeah. all that kind of stuff. I, I don't know anyone who thinks that's fun. No, most people don't. <laughs> <laughs> Right. You wouldn't even know where our passports are. No, I, yeah, no, I, I actually probably don't. <laughs> I am not a paperwork person at all. All right, so that that helps. Okay, that's so so the actual the after sales service is effectively what you're talking about there. Is yeah. how you've been able to differentiate yourself from other yeah. brokers that are much more transactional. Yeah, and most of our clients are referred to us. You know, I mean, yes, part of it is just a. You know, hey, Edwin is really nice. Everyone on her team is really nice. They're really friendly. They'll mm. answer all your questions. And there is no stupid question with us. We mm. will answer all of your questions. Yeah, right. There is still that element of, hey, get in touch with Edwina. Not only will she answer all of your stupid questions, mm. but she'll actually just continue to make sure that you've got the best options. And that's a win-win really, because surely that means that your customers are going to be pretty loyal. Yeah. Oh, they, yeah. They, they're not going to think about going to some other broker. You know, yeah. It's not as though they did it's a transaction with you three years ago and then they're, they're going to go looking for a new broker and three years later when they need to refinance. They've actually been talking to you since then. And yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so most of our clients, as they're starting to think about, okay, we want to buy a new investment property or uh, we want to buy our first one or we want to mm. upgrade our house, mm. generally they will send me an email or they'll send me a text and say, hey, can you call? Mm. Um and we'll have a chat. Yeah, right. First, before yeah. they've done. So they'll, they'll, you're literally the first person they talk to. Yeah, they're yeah, just right. like, hey, okay. let's just get Edwina's take on this. Yeah, right. And and her ideas on, you know, is this the right time? Mm. Um, is there a good way to do this? We'll tell her what we're trying to get to, and she'll help us work mm. out the path to get to it. All right, I, I'm reluctantly going to move on a little bit here because we're still talking about business uh, this far into the interview and I, we, we need to talk about ideas, we need to talk about community as well because these are areas where you've also been doing a lot of really cool stuff. So one of the things that you've said to me many times and anyone that knows you will know is that you're pretty passionate uh, about everyone's financial progress and you want to see everyone uh, getting ahead financially, obtaining financial independence, etc., but uh, for reasons that are fairly obvious, because uh, you are a, a young woman, you're especially passionate about that for other young women. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what you've done over the years 
to help with the education of young women? And and why is this such a passion? Is there really a difference? Do you, is there really a need to focus on financial education for young women specifically? Is there a problem there that, that needs to be solved? There is, and part of it comes from, uh, I guess, the story that has always been told at a greater you know, societal level of women don't need to worry about their finances. They don't need to buy a property on their own. They don't need to, you know, save up for retirement because they will get married and then you will have children and your husband will take care of you. Is that still is that still oh, the, the yeah. narrative? Yeah, totally. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not a girl, so that's not the narrative that I was given, but okay. Yeah, yeah. but it is still there. Yeah, okay. And the reality is that I would say to a certain degree it is just ingrained into the female psyche. Mm -hmm. So to fight against that does seem a little unnatural. It almost seems a little bit greedy to be going, okay, I'm I'm going to build up my own war chest, my own, you know, F you money. Yeah, but at the same time, the you know, just putting talking about the males, the ones that do go, hey, actually, I want to be financially successful, etc. You could describe them as a little bit greedy too, if if you chose to look at it through that lens. Um, sure, but I would say that the the descriptive words that are then used for a male in that position, mm. following those goals, mm. are very different to the descriptive words used to explain a female doing the exact same thing. Okay. Yep. So what are, the th- what are the things that you've done to try and help with, with financial education generally, but especially for, for younger girls? Mm. In big part, it's been actually just going to my old high school okay. uh, and talking to them uh, as part of... Talking to the students. Talking to the students, right, okay. yeah. Talking to the students. At that point, they're usually... 16 or so so Mm. some high schools now are starting to bring in courses not they're not called courses classes um that are around personal finance right so that there is a shift there that is happening it's becoming something that's spoken about yes um how students can then understand you know you're getting your first job so how Mm. do you understand what your pay slip actually says Mm. What is superannuation? Should you care? My bugbear, how to do taxes. Yeah. It doesn't get taught in school. One of the biggest, I mean, I don't know about now, obviously I'm not in yeah, school, no, but it, it's such a big part of life. And if you get it wrong, it can really screw you up. Yeah. doesn't get talked about. And I would say that the way that that is being challenged now and is changing is that, weirdly, the ATO have actually made a more user-friendly portal to do your taxes. Right. So, I mean, sure, here in Australia, doing your taxes, it's not that hard if you've got basic taxes. Right. But if you've got more complicated taxes, you need to get an accountant. Yeah, Yeah, if you're running your own business, if you've got an investment property, if you've got um, a share portfolio, especially if you've got frank dividends, stuff like that, if you've got trusts, you know... 
at that point, you need an accountant. Yeah. And the reality is that the thing that probably needs to just get mentioned over and over and over again to people is at what point do you need to recognize that you need an accountant? Mm. And for some people, like yourself, mm-hmm. um, it's actually the case of, I hate doing the paperwork. Yeah, I'll just get an accountant to do everything. You just get an accountant to do yeah. it. And I'll, so I'll just pay the money and, and do it happily. Yeah, and I would say that I picked up some of that response um, from my grandfather, who yeah, right. was just, his view was, if you don't like doing it, if you don't enjoy doing it, pay somebody else to do it because mm. there will always be somebody that loves doing that thing that you can pay money to. So mm. just pay mm. the money. So that's something that you're doing for younger women. And I, I have yes. seen research that indicates that women do tend to get very different financial outcomes compared to men. Yes. Uh, for a range of reasons, uh, on average, they do get paid less. I'm not going to go down the gender pay gap discussion, but on average, they do get paid less for whatever reasons. You say that, I say something different. Okay. Yeah. Um, the the there is also interruption in their careers they're more much more likely to take potentially substantial time off away from work raising children etc through those early years of their children's life uh, and in the end they just don't have as much in superannuation they're not as likely to have investment properties and and savings and these sorts of things in their own name if they go through a divorce uh, divorces are expensive it costs both oh, sides yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's screwed in divorces it's yeah, yeah it's it's often a very very poor outcome so you've actually been doing a fair bit, and particularly I'm interested in what you're doing online with the community that you built online for, well, primarily women, it's, it seems yeah. to be, that are well, sort of jumping mums. in for mums. Yeah. yeah. So tell me a little bit about what you've created and, and what you've seen, some of, the, some of the stories that you've seen from within that group and people that that's helped. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I guess there, there is a group there, mm. um, and there's... Oh, I think there's like seven and a half thousand women in there. Uh, and, and it's an Australia-centric group, isn't it? it so is, they're mostly yes. Australian Australian mums. Yeah, Australian mums. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah. Um and in, in all sorts of different financial positions, mm-hmm. um and in different family situations mm-hmm. as well. Uh, all trying to achieve ultimately the same goal, which is to be able to retire comfortably and to yep. be able to provide for their kids yeah okay and, you know and, and give them a comfortable life for yep. their kids yep. um sometimes there is a husband or a partner involved as well and sometimes not or sometimes it's equipping with them with the tools and the knowledge to be able to get out of mm. a marriage a or bad partner situation, situation. situation or, yeah. yeah not necessarily abusive sometimes yeah. it's just bad yeah you know yeah. Um, and I guess money would hold a lot of women back, especially the way that a lack of money might impact their children. If they leave with their children, but they've yeah. got nothing, yeah, uh, they they might choose to put up with their own suffering in order to to you yeah. know, not put the children through that. Mm. And so now you can see how an understanding of money feeds into a confidence, yeah, and how building up your confidence and building up your knowledge of money improves your confidence, Mm. which then once you've improved your confidence, that then flows into other areas of life. Options. It it, 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 it does. It provides options. You see the world differently and you've got options when other people maybe would feel like they didn't in the same situation. Yeah. Yeah. So are there any specific stories that stand out to you that have come out of that group that you can share, obviously anonymized and what have you? Yeah. Um, 
um, I won't use the most recent example because it's probably a little too recent. Um, there was a couple who um, they live over in WA uh, and they had been advised to purchase a particular property. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, by their previous mortgage broker who it turned out had told them to buy a particular property as part of a development by a particular developer. So it was a house and land package in a supposedly new up-and-coming area, um, which, you know, WA, it's it's a mining city and area, so Mm. it goes in waves. Oh, it's sort of a, quite a strong boom and bust cycle. Exactly, yeah. yes. So um, they had decided, yes, what a great idea. They had then purchased a property, not quite at the peak of that boom cycle, mm. but pretty close to it, mm. uh, had then decided that they wanted to leave the specific bank that they were with because they felt that uh, what they were paying for their mortgages was was too high. Mm-hmm. And it was. So they then reached out and said, hey, can you help us with this? We're, we're starting to struggle financially and we can see that there is a bust coming and mm-hmm. we're concerned that that's actually going to financially hit us in a pretty bad way. And so they said... We either want to refinance everything to a much lower rate um, to help with cash flow, or if there's something else that we need to do, just help us out. We we know that there is a bust coming and we need to be prepared and we don't really know how to prepare for that. But we're very aware that our biggest expense is our mortgages. I'm like, okay, great. All right, let's have a look at it. Had a look at it, realized that one of the properties that they were looking at, um, which was the property that they had recently bought, was about to go through the floor. Like mm. the, the area that they had purchased in, it just wasn't going to survive. Mm. And so looking at that and going, okay, well, have you ever considered selling this property? They had said, yep, yeah, we, we have. And then realizing, actually, you know what? You can't do anything until you sell this property because these two properties have been cross-securitized and I can't help you until you sold one of these properties. So that's where multiple properties are used as security on on a given loan. Yes. So you've got one loan, but yep. you've got more than one security property. Yep. And it's usually only ever done um, in favor of the banks, not the right, individual right. people. So the banks like it, but it's not yeah. not usually in the best interest of the client. Yeah, it's yeah. very rarely in the best interest of the client. Mm-hmm. And that's what had happened to them. They had everything cross-securitized. And so the previous mortgage broker had done had that. Done that. Yes. So the right. previous mortgage broker had done that so that they would have, my guess, is just scraped through to be able to get the finance for this new property right. that he had then arranged for them. So do you know if that was a conflict of interest situation? But did he have his finger in the pie oh, recommending the sale of that, et cetera? Like yeah, this, probably. That, that just 
my spider senses are tingling that there yeah, was mine a, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry, moving on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I would call that a conflict of interest, but mm. not everybody does, and I guess that's you know what are your motivations? But yeah, and what ethics do you hold yourself to? Even exactly. if you could get away with something, what do you choose to do? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry. So for them, it was a case of actually just guiding them through the process and helping them to know what was the next thing to do and not to get discouraged along the way, especially when you can see a financial bust coming. Mm. Um, Just trying to get all the different steps in motion because as much as we just spoke earlier about how long it takes to purchase Mm. a property, to sell a property takes just as long. Yeah, of course. And then you've got to hope that there's going to be a buyer that's Mm. willing to pay the amount of money that you either want for it or Mm. in some instances actually just need for a property and for them it was a case of working out how much they needed to sell the property for and saying this is the absolute minimum that you can accept Mm. for this particular property and if you don't get this amount well then we've really got to look at other options, mm, which in trouble at, that point. at that point means you're calling up the bank and saying, hey, I'm about to go into financial hardship. How can you help us out? Mm. And the, the, the banks will help. Like, mm. you know, it is in their best interest as well that you keep on paying a yeah, mortgage. Something. Yeah. 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 Um, and that they help you find a solution, especially when you've tried everything else. Yeah. But property, it's an asset that... It's not that liquid. No, you can't just offload it in, in a day. No. So was there a solution for them? Were they yes. able? Okay. Yeah. So it took a while um, and it ended up taking about a year. Oh, goodness. Uh, so you're literally getting alongside these clients and over the course of a year, obviously not full time or anything, but you yeah. are, you're guiding them, thinking about their problem, finding a solution for them, and then actually helping them walk that road to yes. get out of the mess that they were in Yeah. because of their previous mortgage worker. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah, okay. I know, yeah. At some points, you're just like, I just love to be able to track that guy down and be like, <laughs> Punch ah, him in the face. slap you around. <laughs> All right, I, I have to move on, unfortunately. Um, who knew that we would have a lot to talk about? You know, what a surprise. <laughs> um, but I want to get to the two sort of really, or the three really key questions that I ask every single person. So, sorry, hurry. Let me go back a bit, yep. though, because I kind of answered your question and I kind of didn't. So that was a particular situation that came out of that particular group. That group, and, right, right. And part of that was because it was actually the wife, and it often is the mums and the wives, that recognise something needs to change. Mm. And usually they're the ones that see the change coming mm. Because they're generally the ones that are actually dealing with the family's finances on a day-to-day basis. Right. So because of that minute detail, they can see it coming. And often the husbands or the partners don't necessarily see it coming Mm. until they sit down and go, yep, okay, fine. Let's have a look. All right. Let's do something about it. Yeah. But someone's got to bring their attention to it. They wouldn't have noticed it themselves until it was later. Or potentially too late is what you're saying. Yeah, often. Yeah, Mm. unless they're the ones that are actually doing most of the finances for the family. Mm. Um, Or they've heard, you know, a colleague at work say, oh, yeah, I got this really great rate, blah, blah, blah. It's not something that's necessarily thought about. And so that's where that group specifically aimed at mums. 
actually you're talking to the right people yeah. within within each family. They're, they're there. And I know it's quite an active group. I, I'm obviously not in it because I'm not a mum. But I do know it's quite an active group and there's a lot of people sort of talking to each other and a lot of mutual support oh, sort yeah, of going yeah, on yeah. in that Definitely. group. And then obviously with yourself there as well for, for people that really yeah. do actually just need that professional yep. um, support. Yeah, definitely. But I do need to move on because uh, time is, is ticking. So... The three questions that I ask every person uh, that, that comes on this podcast, mm-hmm. is there something, as you've made this journey from being employed to being self-employed and in the process you've found a way to add just a tremendous amount of value to other people's lives, you're building these communities, uh, you're a multi-award winning broker, so you're obviously doing something right on the business side of things. Is there kind of a, a an idea that you followed, a mantra, a, a decision that you've made, something that sticks out uh, that you can look at and go, that has been a huge contributor to my success. It may not, may not be the only thing. It's, it's never just one thing. But is there one thing that does stand out as having been disproportionate in how much it's helped you? Hmm. Like a mantra. Well, it doesn't have to be a mantra. It could be a decision or a philosophy that you've, you, you've pursued. I follow some pretty basic ones. It's often the basics that, that matter, though. So what are they? What, what are the basic There's- stuff? There's one that is a giant poster in my home office mm-hmm. here. I'm surprised you haven't seen it. it. It says, do the work. That's it. Do the work. Do the work. The, the, when you said basic, you weren't kidding. I know. I was not. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I have seen that poster, of course. Um, so do the work. That's, I mean, yeah, okay. That's interesting. That's incredibly basic. I'm, I'm involved in a lot of entrepreneurs groups on Facebook and in other places and one of the things that constantly comes up is people who are just blocked and they have no motivation and they they literally, I mean, if you boil it down, they just can't do the work. So yeah. I can understand that that would make a bit of a difference. Yeah. And I would say that when, when stuff is stressful, as it often does become within business, and again, you know, within business, it's usually around, you know, relationships regarding staff, um, or it's the money side of stuff, mm-hmm. or it's the actual just work of whatever it is that you're an expert at, ultimately the answer comes down to, well, just do the work. You'll, you'll find a way through if you just do the work. So is there a practical manifestation of that? Is there a practical thing that you do to get yourself to do the work when you don't want to? Or, or um, is it literally just kicking yourself in the butt? Yeah, head down, bum up. Right. That, that's incredibly unappealing. That's that's not Sorry. sexy. You, you, yeah, yeah. You're going to have a hard time writing a book and yeah. selling a book around, kick yourself in the ass and go and do it. <laughs> well, I mean, I, and it, I didn't come up with it. It was something that was told to me by uh, my really good boss mm. at AMSI, you know, and he one day just said, there are certain times where you need to just have your head down and your bum up and mm. your ears can be open and you're listening to what's going on around you, but you're sitting there and you are just doing the work. And as long as you're doing the work, everything will be okay. You'll learn along the way because your ears will be open. You'll be mm. seeing what's going on. Mm. Um, but to be able to get through almost anything, you just have to do the work. To, to add a layer of wanky pop psychology to that, it's it's kind of that thing of, um, you know, you can't steer a ship unless it's moving. Yeah. If you're doing the work, you can you can learn and discover and, yep. and steer as yep. you go. Uh, okay. All right. Um, and it went- doesn't matter how big the company is or how small it is or at what stage it is. 
as long as you're actually just doing the work, whatever that work is, mm. you are continuing to move forward. Mm. Very true. All right. So now the reverse question, is there something that you look at in the time since you stepped out and started that business, something within that entrepreneurial journey mm-hmm. that you view as in hindsight, that that was an error of judgment. It was a mistake. It was something that set you back. It cost you a lot of money. It cost you a lot of time. Something that you would say now with what you know now, that's something that you wouldn't do again. At one point, I hired a lady to help with um, some social media content. Mm. And... I didn't vet her well enough and I didn't, yeah, that's probably the simplest way to say it. I didn't vet her well enough. And once she started going and I had paid a whole bunch of money, it was a lot of money at the time for Mm, me, mm. um, to be able to do a bunch of this social media content once she started, I'd, you know, I'd gone through the whole onboarding hoopla and the ads, she was putting out Facebook ads, the ads started to go out and I don't know, I'm assuming she got traction, I, I don't remember. Um, but what I do remember is that I was on my way to get coffee one morning and I got a text message from my mum. I was like, oh, cool. Wonder what mum's saying. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And she had sent me a screenshot and said, you need to get onto your Facebook page right now. And I was like, what? What's going on? I I shouldn't have to do anything. I have this lady that's like taking, I'm I'm paying money for an expert to do what it is experts do. So I don't have to think about it. And she sent me through a screenshot and it was a photo of this lady with her kid in the background and her kid was sticking up the middle finger. So, well, sorry, take a step back. Your social media person that you had engaged to put up content was putting up photos of herself. Yes. Forget the kid in the middle finger. like. This this was her content. Yes, was selfies of herself as your yep. social media person. Yeah. Then the kid in the background sticking up the middle finger. Yes. Okay. That's that's wrong on a lot of levels. Yeah. So you can imagine that when I got to the coffee shop, mm-hmm. I walked in and was like, "Hey, Gavin, how's it going? Yeah, I'll have my usual over here. Thanks very much. I need to make a call now." Mm. And pretty much just called her up and fired her. Yeah. And was like, "No, yeah. stop everything. Take it all down." This is an interesting one because social media is something that I see outsourced so often by Mm. companies uh, or given to interns or, or, you know, we've got a new office person. They're young, they're hip, they understand all the socials. Yeah. But but actually understanding the socials is is not nearly as important as understanding the the voice of the company and the brand of the company and and putting forward the right kind of content. Mm -hmm. So how do you manage social media now? so that you don't end up with kids sticking their middle finger up. <laughs> do more vetting of people mm. that assist with such actually, things. Actually, I do want to pick that up. So what vetting with hindsight, if you were bringing on another social media person now, what vetting would you be doing to ensure that didn't happen again? I would be checking through that person's 
credentials a lot more. Mm. Um, well, people who are social media marketers, marketers don't need to have credentials. So. They don't, no. So uh, when I say credentials, a lot of it comes down to testimonials. Okay. So existing going clients. existing clients, but then also not just existing clients. And it's one thing to go, oh, great, they have this amazing testimonial on their website or on this bit of collateral that they have given you. Mm. But going back and actually looking at, okay, now I'm going to go to that company's website. Or I'm going to go to that company's Facebook page and see what up there is actually potentially attributed to this particular person. Oh, I see. So looking at their clients, not just looking at the testimonials, yep. but actually looking at their body of work on their clients' yes. social media channels. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Because that will give you a feel for what they do. It'll mm. also give you a feel for, specifically with social media, whether they actually only have one tone of voice. Right. Are they adapting to the brands they're representing? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Or are if, they just putting up their thing? They're putting up their thing and they're using the exact same or very similar, you know, uh, copy or mm. like the text of an ad or the, the text of a particular content, mm. then, well, um, that's pretty bad. Yeah. And, and if you're lucky and it happens to match your business voice, well, okay, maybe. But if not, then... Yeah. Yeah. The okay. odds are- yeah. All right. You're not going to have great success. F- final question before we wrap this up. If there was someone, and let's assume it's a, it's a young woman as well. So let's speaking to yourself at that age that you were where you took that leap out of AMSI into being self-employed. And they're sitting there in a good job with which many people would be perfectly happy to sit in and, and make a career out of and work their way up the ranks and retire at 55 or 60 and you know, et cetera. But they had that itch. They had that thing. In the mm-hmm. back of their mind, that they're like, "There's this thing that I actually think I'd be—I I would bring more value if I was doing this. I would be having more fun. I'd be enjoying life more. I would have a greater sense of fulfillment. Whatever the itch is for them, there's something that they're thinking about doing. What advice would you give to that person to give them the best possible chance of succeeding in that thing? I would say, do as much to prepare." for it in your current role and that includes things like you know business plans marketing plans making sure you have enough money behind you Mm. um before you take that leap but the other thing that i would say which i think a lot of people forget about like lots of people say oh yeah prepare for you know that new business blah 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 um the other thing i would say is be comfortable putting a time limit on it. Before so, you pull the plug and say that didn't work, you mean? Yeah, or, okay. yeah. So be comfortable saying I will go hard at this particular thing for three years, mm. for five years. Mm. If in that time I can't get it to a point where you are satisfied with that growth, mm then be comfortable pulling the plug and walking right. away. Right. Because without that, too many people get caught up in that sunk cost mentality. I've sunk so much time. I've sunk so much money into this. I have to keep on going. I can't walk away now. I can't walk yeah. away now. Which is the gambler's addiction. Exactly, you know? yes. Yeah. And the reality, and again, because, you know, as we have talked about a lot, the money side of it and the finance side of it plays such a huge role and is 
so entwined in people's psyche means that for most people, they will keep on putting good money after bad. Mm. And the longer that you do that, if you're doing it with a business that isn't succeeding or isn't fulfilling anymore, uh, the worse your personal situation will be when you do finally walk away from it. Yeah, right. And and that point where you're then walking away from it is often going to be so much more devastating mm. than if you had just put a time limit on it and gone, you know what, I tried this for three years mm. or I tried this for five years and you know what, actually it hasn't replaced my full-time income. Mm. I If I had stayed in my job, I would have been earning this much money. I'm not, okay, walk away. Mm. Challenging stuff. Go. It's so easy to let your identity get wrapped up in the business that you run. When you're, particularly if you're an entrepreneur, if you started your own business, yeah. um, that's Single a challenging. Entry. That's a challenging thing to have to. I, and I guess that's probably the power of thinking about it in advance. Is it's a bit less personal at that point. It's a bit mm. less. It's a bit easier to set that goal or set that that milestone, that threshold, uh, than it would be in the moment. Uh, it's probably a lot harder to walk away. You know, from the pokey machine when you've just fed all the money in versus yeah, exactly. versus only walking in with a certain amount of cash and, and leaving your, your ATM card at home. It sort of cuts you off at that point whether you like it or not. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You don't want to lose the house. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Edwina, <laughs> Eddie as I know you, or Babe. What do I call you? Well, you usually call me Babe as well. Well, that's we're, true. We're not yeah. particularly creative. We just kind of fire the same name back at each other. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. I really do appreciate it. And uh, I know that everyone that's been listening will recognize that you really do belong on this podcast. You are someone who brings value. You, uh, you've you created value in business. You're creating value in terms of ideas. And you're creating value in community and the communities that you're building and the way that you're helping people as well. So thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode four of Living Value. If you'd like to know more about Edwina Dixon and Pinpoint Finance, you can find her at pinpointfinance.com.au or follow at Edwina Dixon, that's with an E, E-D-W-E-N-A, Dixon, D-I-X-O-N, on Instagram, or you can also follow at Pinpoint Finance on Instagram as well. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting me at tofafield.locals.com forward slash subscribe. I'd love for you to share this podcast with others. Follow me on Podbean or your preferred podcast platform. And of course, you can follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Field. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for more episodes of Living Value.